This is The Lit Fantastic, a podcast series about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. In this episode, I speak with Lynn Mayatani, the author of Ink and Ashes, the winner of the 2013 New Visions Award, and an old friend of mine from back in my undergraduate days. Uh, I've known Valin for years, literally for decades, and I had no idea she had this particular obsession. I think it started maybe probably close to 10 years ago, maybe longer. But one of my strangest obsessions is with gaudy, ugly rings. And the bigger, the better. And at first, I don't even remember why I started it. I think I was, I must have been in Las Vegas. But just the uglier, the better, and the bigger, the better. And one of the reasons I love it so much is that when I see these rings on other people, I always wonder what story is behind it. Sometimes I've seen rings that have huge fish and flowers and all kinds of things. And I just think, what made you pick that ring? And so it kind of gets my mind spinning and I wonder what what kind of things they're passionate about. And and there's just so many stories I make up in my head about why a person would choose that kind of ring. So everywhere I go, I'm always on the lookout for the ugliest rings possible. A lot of my friends know that I have a passion for these, so I often get them as presents. But the other thing I like about them is that they're so distinct that when I do buy one, I remember where I got it, and I remember why I got it, and I, or I remember uh, if it was a present from someone who knew that I liked these kinds of rings. And I just kind of rotate through my collection and wear them whenever I feel like wearing them. The other thing I like about it is that they're so awful that whenever I am wearing one, people are always going to ask about it. Where did you get that? Why did you get that? So I love, I think it's a great conversation piece. And I love talking to people. I love meeting new people. And it's just been one of the fun things that is not something I would normally wear, but I just love it. It's something that I just love doing. Okay. So what, what would you say is, is perhaps the weirdest looking ring that you've picked up over, over this time? I, okay. There are two different rings. One has a huge fake diamond in the middle, but then all around it are these little ceramic bees and flowers and it's just this huge mess on top of a ring and I absolutely love it and then the other one is a combination of I don't even I I don't it's it's kind of hard to describe but basically it's a huge fish that kind of wraps around in a circle so that the head meets the tail uh, but the fish is not pretty by any means. It's just big. It's just big orange, reddish orange fish, and I love that one too. <laughs> These sound amazing. Um, yes, I mean, and how can you not look at something like that and think, I have to ask that person where she got that. <laughs> Or why? I, I I always get asked questions when I'm wearing these huge ugly things, but it's fun. 
So, so what's the um, what's next for you? Do you have a your eye on a ring right now? Something that you want to pick up that you've been hunting for that you've seen? No, I am never. I'm never on the lookout. What I do is it's just kind of this organic thing that if I happen to be somewhere and I see something that catches my attention, then I will get it. And and I love when that happens because that in particular depending on where I am, that will always remind me of that place or mm-hmm. certain memories. And it is unique. It's not, um, I think that people have snow globe collections or, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of collections from various places. But I like that. I don't think I've ever met anyone who has an ugly wing collection the way I do. <laughs> Maybe maybe you're aspiring to Imelda Marcos level with her shoes. Um, yeah, I you know I I can always try. I, I can always, always try. try. Yeah, we can all hope at some point too. <laughs> I, yes, I, yes. I think that, that that would be the pinnacle of my career, reaching Imelda Marcos status. But you know, I may never get there. So so does this spill over in any way in in terms of your writing or writing practice? I think that the things, of course, that, that make characters memorable are the really unique things about them. And so I kind of use it as my metaphor for when I'm creating a character, finding these really unique things that, that make them stand out and mm-hmm. make it so that when a reader looks at this character and they see these unique kind of strange things, those unique things help them create a better picture and memory of that character. And I think that when we do that as writers, it allows the reader to connect on a different level, connect on a more emotional level. You know, whether you are into whatever this character is into, or even if you can't necessarily on a personal level relate to what makes that character unique, it's something that can connect readers to these characters just because they're different, and and it helps. I think in general for people to read about characters who aren't like them, and I think that helps breed empathy in society in general. But just understanding what makes a person tick, what makes a person have that kind of perspective, or think that the way that they do, because I think there's so many things that make people unique, and that is the thing that often, especially for young adults, which is what I write for, I think that there's a lot of focus on trying to be the same mm-hmm. and trying to be like everyone else. And we think that that that's what is going to make us happy rather than embracing the things that make us unique. And so um, I think um, I grew up in Utah. I am Japanese-American. And there really there's not a lot of diversity. And so when I grew up, I remember I was fortunate in that I never was the recipient of racism or, or and you know, any kind of cruelty in terms of that. But I, I was very conscious of how I looked different from everyone else. So I remember as a teenager, especially being feeling like I was like any other teenager, but every now and then wishing I had blonde hair and blue eyes so that I could look like everyone else and not be the one standing out in the crowd when someone walked into a room and over time, and it's taken a lot of time, but, but over time I, that I've realized that it's the unique parts of my personality that 
uh, are the things that do make me stand out and that that are worthy and are things that I should embrace rather than try to hide. And so I think that's why that's part of why I love these big ugly rings, but also why those are the parts and characters that I really want to bring out and highlight so that other people don't have to look at, you know, the same thing all the time. I, they can see different aspects of characters. And, and as I said, you know, come to understand different situations, hopefully, and different perspectives, and therefore, hopefully be more empathetic towards other people. I, I love what you, you, you've done here. You've, you've made this really interesting bridge between your collecting of these, these you know, quote-unquote ugly rings and, and sort of the experience of feeling outside or different, you know, whether it has to do with sort of racial or ethnic identity, physical appearance, or, or, or other sort of markers that might separate us from, from the rest of the society. And I think what you're, you're saying here, uh, if I am if I getting this right, is really that this is kind of a, a way of challenging sort of conventional beauty and saying that there's there's more than one way, that, that there's room for, for other things to be beautiful. And that, that, you know, these rings are kind of emblematic of that sort of, uh, of move towards saying, look, this is what makes them remarkable is the fact that they don't adhere to the ways in which we expect things to look. And yet, their full embrace of the way that they are different and challenging to to what everyone else has kind of talked about as traditional or conventional beauty is actually what makes them really remarkable and appealing. It's not that they're hiding at all. <laughs> they instead sort of mm-hmm. celebrate this this sort of almost avant-garde or or, or very, um, not even avant-garde, just a different way of, of being beautiful. And I think it, it is. You're right. It really is sort of a message that that is perfectly, you know, it fits within sort of that that experience of growing up, and it definitely fits within a, a society um, such as our society, which is in the middle of, of these major shifts as, you know, more and more people come to the United States, more and more people that diversity and, and multiculturalism, the, the effects of globalism as more and more people move throughout the country and throughout the, the world. Mm-hmm. We're going to just see a lot of different ways in which people can be beautiful and different ways in which we can, um, you know, deserve a place and be valuable. Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, and, and just I think often in respect to the rings and, and in respect to the way I look in general, I think there's so many assumptions that people make right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are assumptions that someone might make by looking at my ring and wondering why is she wearing that and I think there are certain assumptions that are made when someone looks at me and sees that I am Asian and what I like is that a lot of times I am nothing like whatever assumptions these people Mm. have and so I I like that aspect as well that first of all I don't know I think one assumption just from the get-go is that a Japanese American wouldn't necessarily wear a big, ugly, gaudy ring like like I do, uh, because you know I'm Asian. I'm supposed to be more conservative. I'm supposed to, you know, be quieter and and I'm not necessarily. And so I love I love the idea that 
you know, there might be these assumptions, but if you talk to me, you'll find that I'm probably not what you think I am. And I think that it's good to get to know people to figure out what they are, because I think everyone does it. I think I do it. You kind of make these judgments and assumptions just at first glance, and and you may not always be right. And so I think it's good to open your mind a little and just give people a chance to see what they're really like. Enjoy what you're hearing? Obsessed with what you're hearing? Subscribe to The Lit Fantastic on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. And now, back to our interview. So, so what would you say are some of the, the worst or strangest assumptions people make about writers in general? And maybe about your own experience as an author? I think one big assumption that is just not true is that writers that all writers make a lot of money, and we don't. Uh, there are Here we insert the laugh who, track. Right, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are, there are some that definitely do, but the majority don't. And I think, so I, I definitely think that is one assumption. Uh, I think another assumption that I hear, and I'm t- when I say assumptions about writers, I'm talking about people who are not writers making assumptions about people who are writers. Uh, I think there's an assumption that we have a lot of time to write and that it comes easy to us. And that is not true at all. I don't know how many people have told me, oh, I would love to write a book sometimes, but I just don't have the time. And, some, and and for me, if people knew half of what goes on in my life, they would realize they actually do have more time than I do. And so I think that they have this idea that, you know, they, that I have, I sit at home all day and I, I, you can just call me whenever you want to do things because I don't really do anything all day. Uh, yes, I work at home, but I work. And so I think that's, that is another assumption. But I also think as in related to what I just said, I think that, that people think that it comes easy for us and it, and it doesn't. Yeah. I don't think that people understand how hard writing is and, and, and it's not just a natural talent. I hear a lot of times, you know, oh, he is such a talented writer or she is such a talented writer. And, and I think that what people don't understand is that that talent was born out of like blood and sweat and tears and a lot of hard work. And even those who have, I guess, natural proclivities towards writing are still required to work very hard on their craft and work hard uh, to make sure that they are, are up to par with, you know, their writing skills. It's not something that, that comes just so easily for people. So like anything that is worth doing, it, it, it is a lot of work. Oh, I definitely agree on that. I, I think that that is sort of a recurring problem of, of when people see the end product, they don't see the process that it, it took to get there. And they don't see, right. they don't see all the, um, all the 
all the missteps and all the the failures and all the um all the places where things didn't go right and we had to start over um i i actually okay. one of one of the um one of the people i'm really fascinated by myself is a 19th century mathematician by the name of charles babbage and he um once wrote a book called the uh on the economy of uh machines and manufacturers i think is what it was but basically he did this study where he go went through the entirety of england visiting all the factories that made different things and they wrote a book kind of examining sort of the different processes that that different different factories and and fields used to produce things and looked at ways in which they might contribute to each other but along the way he made this comment that was absolutely you know it kind of speaks not just to to the making of of you know manufactured goods but writing in general and he said that if you survey if you look over a room um that uh everything that you see is a history of failures Mm-hmm. And I, I love that idea. I love the idea that that everything that we see as a finished product is actually the sum of a history of failures, of things that we didn't get right until finally we did. That is that is so true. That is so true. I, I've heard that on average it takes a writer 10 years of solid writing before they are published. And that's a really long time. I think, you know, doctors <laughs> go to school and work on that for 10 years before they become doctors. But I don't think anyone would, who who is not a writer would naturally assume it would take someone 10 years. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And there's a lot of failure. And there's a part of me, I mean, I don't know for sure, but there is a part of me that believes anyone can be a writer. Mm-hmm. If you work hard enough and you try hard enough and you're willing to fail over and over and over again because there's so much failure in writing. There's so much not getting it right. And uh, when I first started writing, I talked to this this um, man named Rick Walton. He's written a million books and he's so he, he is so generous with his time and advice and so knowledgeable about the industry. And so I was asking him for advice because it was brand new. And and I said, what do you think I should, you know, like what is the best advice you can give me? Um, And his name is Rick Walton. And he said, he said, I think you should quit. And I remember the sheer anxiety that started to, to just kind of buzz through me because I was thinking, I I thought I had finally figured out what it, what I wanted to do with my life. I, I I thought I'd finally figured out what I wanted to do when I grew up. I mean, yeah, it's taken many decades, but I thought I figured it out. And he's telling me to quit. And so I said, your advice is to quit. And he said, yeah, his writing's really hard. It's really hard. So my advice is to quit. And then he said, but if you can't quit, then write. And I love that because I do think in life, not just writing, you know, you understand that it's worth it if even if you wanted to, you couldn't quit. Mm -hmm. And I think the ones that get published end up in that place that even if they wanted to, they couldn't quit. And so despite how hard it is, despite the fact that not all of us are millionaires, 
it's something that we couldn't quit if we wanted to. And so I think those that just stay with it are willing to fail, are willing to be open to feedback and constructive criticism. I think those are the ones who end up published. Mm. Oh, I agree. I agree. It is, it is definitely not a sprint, but, um, it's something it's much more of a marathon and it's not one marathon. It's just a continual mm-hmm. series of marathons that we're running. And yeah, it, it would be easy, easy to quit except for the fact that you can't seem to quit. <laughs> there are, there are definitely times though when, when I feel like we, we take breaks and we, we separate ourselves from the work for a little bit. I think we have to do that for our own sanity, but mm-hmm. We can never leave it completely alone. We have to come back at some point, do some more work. Yeah, I think that with true writers, there's always that thing, just kind of sitting at the back of you know, back of your mind. That even if you take a break for a few years, that mm-hmm. thing all of a sudden starts to grow and grow, and until you have to write again. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, did you have anything you wanted to read for us today? I can read the prologue of Ink and Ashes. Okay. Should I give the background of If you want to give a a tiny little bit of context, yeah, that would be great. Okay. So Ink and Ashes is a mystery slash thriller. It's a young adult book that uh, is about a Japanese-American teenage girl whose family is relocated to Utah. And her biological father has passed away. Her mom has remarried. And in the book, she ends up finding this letter that was written from her biological father to her stepfather. And she can't figure out why they would have kept it hidden from her. And as she digs deeper, she discovers that her biological father was a member of the Yakuza, which is the Japanese mafia. And so there was a reason why her parents had hidden that from her. And as she digs, she also unearths a bunch of problems. So this is the prologue from Ink and Ashes. People go to hell for what I'm about to do. The old man glares at me, his face so close I can see the wrinkles on his forehead stretch wide when he speaks. Do you know who I am? He yells. I choke on his stale, smoke-filled breath. A thick Japanese accent stains his words. Do you know who you are? Claire Takata, daughter of loving parents, devoted sister, loyal friend. He strikes me with the back of his hand, the force almost tipping the chair I'm tied to. The sting sends a burning shiver down the side of my face. Answer me, he demands. I am the heiress to a legacy I wish I'd never discovered. The cold night prickles my skin. I twist my hands, trying to escape, but the rope cuts into my wrists. I swallow hard and try again. All the terror he's put me through makes anger storm inside. I want to hurt this man as much as he has hurt me. If I were free, I could kill this man right now without guilt. That's it. Wow. Tense. Now we have to find the rest of the, read the rest of the story and discover what happens next. Yep. Yep. That's the goal, right? (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Flynn, for, no for being part of this conversation. And um, 
we are never going to look at um, strange and ugly looking rings ever again the same way. It's going to be a new thing. I hope not. <laughs> I agree. There's so many stories to be told. That was Belin Mayatani, YA author. Her debut novel, Ink and Ashes, was winner of the New Visions Award in 2013, as well as a number of other prizes. For more information about Valin and her upcoming projects, check her out online at valin.com. You've been listening to The Lit Fantastic, a production of KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. Special thanks to freemusicarchive.org and to our producer, Jenna Yokoyama. To find out more, check out our website at www.thelitfantastic.com. And until the next episode, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>